Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones, and today, this is Season 1, Episode 7. It's our interview with Roxana Jolipat. Roxana is the owner of Friends and Family, a bakery in Los Angeles, as well as the author of a brand new cookbook, Mother Grains, Recipes for a Grain Revolution. It was a really lovely conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot about the cookbook and Roxana's career, as well as her bakery in Los Angeles. Um, It's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned. Welcome today to our podcast, Roxana Jollipath, other of Mother Grains, Recipes for the Grain Revolution. Roxana, I want to thank you for appearing on our podcast. I want to thank you very much for being here today. How did you come to work in baking? Did you always want to be a professional chef? And was this your first career? Living in Costa Rica, where I spent a lot of time. Uh, basically all my uh, childhood and young adulthood. And um, I graduated with a bachelor's in journalism and thought that I would probably write about subjects that were related to agriculture, food, food economy, uh, social um, change around food, uh, food injustice, food justice. Um, And in going through that and researching those topics, I just kind of like fell in love with cooking all over again because I've cooked since I was very young and it felt like maybe this is something I could do um I thought I would do it for just a short period of time sort of go to cooking school learn a little bit more about food so I could talk about food with more confidence in my writing and I just happened to never go back to to writing until I wrote this cookbook um or reporting or journalism in any form beyond, you know, those externships and first office jobs I had when I was very young and still in college. What are some of the early memories you have that influenced you becoming a baker and a chef and working with food? I come from a family of people that are definitely cooks not uh, my parents were into cooking but they were perhaps more functional about it like we were five kids so let's get these kids to eat let's get these kids fed fed we also were um there was a wide range of uh taste in my house there were kids that were very picky eater like my sister and there were kids that ate everything like myself and my little brother so uh, there was not a lot of culinary fascination per se Maybe my dad had more of an inclination. Um, my, my mom definitely tried not to cook as much as possible, as much as she couldn't help it. But in our house, we always had uh, workers, that domestic workers that would come and help my, my parents with child rearing. And uh, with them, I learned a lot, actually. I learned how to use a rice cooker or that you have to sort beans before you boil them, for example. Um, and all of these women, because they were all women, were uh, refugees from Central American countries that were fleeing like horrific conflicts. So you learn a lot about food and you learn about, you know, war and refugees and how important it is to provide asylum <laughs> to refugees. So, so it was an all-encompassing um, education to have these people around. Then there were the grandparents and the aunts. Um, and those people were really, really into cooking and fantastic cooks. 
And um, the occasions in which we would cook together were always commun uh, communal and great parties, um, lunches that would last until the wee hours of the night and things like that. What were some of your early memories of cooking with your family? Well, I remember making pancakes, you know, imagine you're the middle sister of five kids, you're going to, you're going to learn how to make pancakes, because by the time you make pancakes for all of those people, you, you can bake a pan, you can make a pancake. Um, my, my stepmom has a fa fabulous recipe that is a sweet corn lasagna that we all learn how to make, and I actually kind of got really good at it. Um, that's definitely, a, 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 that definitely holds a soft spot in my heart. Can you tell me about what restaurants and bakeries you came to work in before you opened Friends and Family? Well, you know, it's been 20 years in this business, so I've definitely um, set foot in a lot of kitchens. The most notable, perhaps, was like the first one where I, I it was a small cafe. Actually, it still exists here, very close to where I, I lived at the time. It's in this neighborhood in LA called Los Feliz. Um, I could walk to work, which is really rare in this town. And I just, you know, push my resume, very, very tiny resume under the door right before the cafe opened. They hired me the next day and I just came to make salads and desserts um, under a screaming uh, French chef, like the, that stereotype that you think exactly that guy. And in time, the kitchen was totally chaotic and the bistro was tiny and there was a lot to do and not a, a great uh, distribution of labor but I, I find myself making desserts and plating desserts so I thought to myself if I'm gonna make desserts I should find a really really great kitchen to make desserts in um, and I applied to Campanile which at the time was owned by Nancy Silverton and Mark Peel I trained with her and her pastry chef at the time, which is this fantastic woman who's now my friend. Her name was S. Kimberly Boyce, and she owns a beautiful bakery in North Portland in Oregon. It's called Bake Shop, um, and I worked under them for two years. Then I migrated to other kitchens, most notably as I uh, worked with Suzanne Goen. She owned Luke at the time here in West Hollywood and AOC. Um, eventually, we moved to Portland, Oregon for a little bit, my husband and I, and we work at Clark Lewis, one of those, you know, um, farm to table, cool places to work in. Um, we came back to LA, we work at Amo, another farm to table, um, stubborn restaurant that just lasted for like 20 years until they closed. Um, then we opened a place where my husband and I were partners. It was called Cooks County. We run it for like three to four years, totally burned out. Um, we decided to take a break. We took a couple of years, put our heads together and we're like, what is the place that we want to do next? And we opened a bakery. How has the quarantine for coronavirus affected your restaurant, friends and family? Almost everybody, the hardest part was to know what to do, right? To make a decision that seemed right for the future of the business, for your employees and for your own health, right? So our first step was to close. We didn't know for how long, but we it was very evident that we weren't gonna 
bring enough re uh, income to keep the doors open because sales dipped overnight, including a very healthy wholesale business that we maintain to this day. So we closed for 10 weeks, but I stayed in the kitchen baking bread for a couple of uh, wholesale customers and for ourselves. And then we started to offer our breads and pastries in boxes and take out over the weekend. Um, also, my husband, uh, who's the chef, uh, would make like roasts and things like that that people could reheat at home. Ten weeks later, eight to ten weeks later, we decided that we would reopen uh, following the protocol at the time with the city of LA. And it was a very confusing and depressing time because you're used to open the doors and having having this bustling and, and really, really energetic place. And all of a sudden, it's like really, really quiet. Even customers that came to support us daily would seem very hesitant and afraid. Um, everybody's still getting accustomed to wearing masks and all this social distance stuff. Um, but by the fall, we found our groove. The, the bakery it has been so busy ever since. Um, we've realized that baked goods, bread, and these items that are affordable and very nurturing and sort of um, comforting have have sustained a lot of people in our community through this rough patch and by then we were fully staffed all over again the holidays were very very busy and and it almost felt like if it wasn't for the mask everything was fine and this year we've definitely experienced a shift in energy things are are really turning the corner um, having a new president in the White House really helped the morale of the city. It's a very, very liberal city. Um, and we all feel that, that, that there's an incredible sense of community, um, especially my immediate neighborhood. The, the movement to get everybody vaccinated and vaccinate ourselves has been very, very strong. So, so yeah, I, I, right now I feel very positive about the business and, and the country and the city. Everything seems to have turn around. I read in an interview that you're an advocate for garden-based education. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, uh, so my interest in garden-based education started actually during the Obama years, many years ago. Um, and it's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really reveal my age, I guess, here, because at the time I was like professionally fairly satisfied. I knew what I liked, I knew what I, where I stood, like what were my strengths, what, what, what was my niche and how, how, who was my audience. And I felt really rewarded in that respect. But um, restaurants are really, really grinding work environments. And um, there's very little sense of connection with the community at large, you know? Um, and also it's a business that doesn't necessarily produce enough, enough revenue that you can say, oh, let's take all the time in the world to engage in other hobbies and endeavors, right? However, um, volunteering at gardens around town seem really cool. And my, all my outreach in general until very recently when things got really bad, um, it felt to me that I should work on things that had a future rather than charities that had a palliative effect, right? So 
I was like, yeah, sure, I could raise funds and run for Alzheimer's, for example, when I was running marathons, but I could also just go and help this tiny little school, Title I school, um, build their own garden and, and sort of like participate in these activities where you connect with the kids and their parents and their teachers and, and teach them a little something about cooking if, 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 if that was the occasion, if we taught a class or, um, and then I connected with the uh, local chapter of um, the uh, Edible Schoolyard and um, which is a really cool little school. It has four campuses. It happens to be a charter. And the group who have run it, have run it from the get-go. Like they founded the project and they keep doing it to this day. And by now we've been friends for like over a decade. And um, these women were teaching with like the little bit that they had with a little um, I mean, the program is very prestigious in the Bay Area, right? But like here, here they are with like, uh, you know, using a host to wash the dishes and are like, okay, what do you guys need? How can we make, make you, how can we get you money so that you can finance the things that you need? So um, I started a fundraiser and that's, that's what I did. And I did it for five consecutive years and we donated probably over the years has been a close to 10 grand to like small businesses around town. And it gives me an opportunity to involve other fellow bakers. We do bake sales and things like that. Now bake sales are everywhere and in every format. But at the time we convinced the Hollywood farmer's market, one of the busiest here in Los Angeles to let us have a booth right in the center on a Sunday on either spring or fall. And, and just just like sell baked goods baked by some of Los Angeles best bakers. Um, and I look forward to going back to do more work. We've also worked with other organizations. There's also the Garden School Foundation and there's other independent schools that are not associated to any nonprofits and they just have school gardens um, here, very close to me. Like that's important to me. I wanna, I wanna see these gardens, who, who runs them, who weeds them, I wanna see that. And you know, if you think about it, like the one thing I think about how what's going to change the way we view food and how we uh, assign to it appropriate value is to have future generations have that connection to food. And like a, a perfect example that I've seen a hundred times is you ask a child to eat kale, they may or may not eat it. Yeah. Have that kid pick that kale, wash it and cut it. He, he or she will eat it 100%. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I want to talk about your new book. Um, it is called Mother Grains, Recipes for the Grain Revolution. Um, I've really enjoyed the cookbook very much. And I wanted to ask you, how did you come to write this? And uh, what was, what inspired you? 
So for a few years, um, you know, I would say for the better half of my career, my second act, if you can call it, um, I, I've always had an incredible, incredibly deep interest in seasonal food. Uh, it comes from having grown in the tropics, right, where you have um, an abundance of fruits and vegetables all the time. And then you move, I, when I moved here back to Los Angeles, I, I realized that there is an abundance of food the only difference is that they change according to uh, short seasons um, for the most part. And, uh, but the benefit of not having them all year around is that when they are with us, man, are they good. You know, they are so flavor packed and, and they really brighten and uh, mark the, the rhythm of the year. Um, so my cooking, my baking has always been very connected to the seasonality of, of Southern California. Um, it became pretty obvious in time that grains are an intrinsic part of that seasonality. And once you make that connection, that grains or flour that comes from grains, is not just that white stuff that comes in 50 pound bags to your bakery, but rather something that grows on the ground and is harvested and clean and um, and put out on a seasonal basis, yeah. then you you cannot be interested in it. You can't. In the last 10 years, we've seen a large amount of emphasis pointed away from cooking with, gra with grain to other options. And you're seeing a lot of things in the store, a lot of alternate grains. And I've seen a lot of cookbooks that deal with um, issues like celiac disease or um, doing no carb diets, you know, we have the keto diet and there's so many other types of diets. How influenced were you by that writing this book? Well, it's amazing. Uh, American food culture, right? It's like this, this kind of like, um, uh, ecosystem in which all these like mini diets and mini and mini and large ideas coexist, right? And some cannibalize one another and then some take over and are predatory and just like, um, become almost like mainstream, right? Like this idea that we shouldn't eat that much grain, that grain is going to ru ruin your gut health, that that gluten is m very dangerous, or that um, you should really, really focus on eating um, mostly animal protein uh, or, or, and, and rule out any carbs out of your life. I don't know, like seriously, like if, if one was to follow, you would go crazy, right? And people do, in fact, go crazy. And we develop this like very horrific uh, relationships with food, right? Uh, rich, rich country problems, 100%, right? But I would say that the, the thing about grains and the thing about cooking is that uh, they form part of like, it's just yet another chapter in this um, sort of, I want to, I don't want to say trend because it's not, but it's this like subculture slash culture, because maybe it's not so sub in which we are advocating for cooking our own food and favoriting uh, uh, foods that are whole, right? That are grown sustainably and, and in a just way that don't get farmers sick, that don't employ illegal labor or labor that is mistreated because let's not cross that bridge of illegal labor but um uh and also like 
foods that have an, a lesser eco footprint and uh, foods that are relevant for uh, seed saving and that are sort of uh, encouraging the agriculture of more that biodiversity, right? So whether the customer knows it or not, anytime you buy this uh, heirloom wheat varieties, right, you are encouraging uh, uh, an, um, an industry in agriculture that is not getting subsidized subsidies from the government, that they are not getting huge investments from Wall Street. So we are supporting a very, very staunch group of growers, manufacturers, um, uh, retailers that want to promote the consumption of these products in our life. So I don't want to say it's a, it's a is a trend and I also don't wanna say that we're discovering something. It's almost like we are rediscovering, right? Like it has always been here. It's such a part of who we are. It's sort of like learning that you had this sort of like um, crazy creative inventor uncle that nobody introduced you to. Like this are, is part of your DNA. You know, at the end of the day, we're cooking because we want to eat delicious food. We bake because we want something delicious and pretty and, and fulfilling, right? Um, and the, the focus of everything beyond any, any costs, beyond any food security concerns, at the end of the day, we bake and we cook because we want to feed ourselves something delicious. So flavor has to be very, very important. And, you know, these grains may sound weird and they do have interesting textures and, and flavors that are not what we're accustomed to. But at the end of the day, when put, put in practice and uh, when incorporated into our, our cooking and baking, they produce delicious results. One of the things I really loved about Mother Grains was how accessible the recipes were. Everything in it um, was designed to be fairly normal. There was no surprises or avant-garde creations in it. Everything was something that anybody would make, muffins, scones, breads, all of it was stuff in, in your most people's rep repertoire. But you made it with um, grains that were not always accessible or, or, or normally used. And I, you made it very nice and very, um, usable. So is this the design that you had when you created the cookbook? Yeah, for sure. And this is like the approach that we have at the bakery. We want to make all this like time honored goods, you know? Yeah, we wanted to make croissants and we wanted to make chocolate chip cookies and we want to make loaves of bread. The one thing that we want to do different is make the flour in them that much better make choices that really, really benefit the flavor of, of the final product, while at the same time fulfilling all the sustainability and, and, and um, uh, food security and food justice goals that um, I have ingrained in my, in my head and in my heart. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we just wanted to put out really, really great food. And I don't want to preach to anybody that comes to my bakery. Um, I I had I've, I had all kinds of spiels ready when when we first opened to how I was going to explain to people why I have buckwheat in my banana bread and Sonora wheat in my croissants and I have never ever ever had to explain anything to anyone because at the end of the day we just want good food 
and that's that that's what we do it's just that we have chosen this flower that we find to be very interesting I think as an example, I use buckwheat um, to make the buckwheat banana bread in your book, and I found it to be phenomenal. I don't think I would ever make it any other way again. It just seems so synonymous with each other and so perfect. It would be impossible. Or it's kind of like once you make a, a good muffin with spelt, so yeah. easy. So it, I mean, spelt is also one of those grains that has really, really um, made a hitchway into our food system. So you can find it in regular grocery stores. So once you've made a, 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 a muffin with, with spelt, it's kind of like, seems like, why would you not do it again and again and again? You know, it's, it works, it's delicious, affordable. All, it checks all the boxes. And that's what Mother Grains was all about. It's like, how do we look at these ingredients in a different way? They have always been around. We're just looking at, it, at them differently. We're learning about some other ingredients that we're not, we're not very familiar with such as sorghum, right? I'm still learning about, uh, about sorghum. Um, even after doing all the research I did for, for the cookbook, I wanna do some more, you know? Um, it's such a promising um, ingredient, but that's exactly what, we, what, what the book is about, what my bakery is about. We're just looking at this normal, everyday things in a whole different way. Before we go, I wanna ask you one last question. This is always a fun one. Um, if you could invite up to 10 people from history or from your current life to a dinner party, and it could be anybody, famous or non, and you could cook anything you like, who would you invite and what would you serve? Well, um, my grandparents, um, all of them actually, uh, died when I was relatively young. And uh, my grandmother with whom I spend uh, I think I was six when she died, like left such a mark on, on my psyche. I, I would definitely think that I want to see all of my grandparents there, um, including my paternal grandmother, who uh, I've been told by my aunts that we have a very similar personality. I thought, I thought that would be fun to see why people say that. Um, I think I would love I mean, like, I guess, of course, why not? I would love to talk to Julia Child. Um, I would love to talk to, um, I, I mean, if she would come, I don't know. <laughs> she would come. Um, I also uh, really, like one of my favorite authors is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who died a few years ago, about 10 years ago. I read everything he ever wrote in press or in, um, in fiction. Um, and I know for a fact that he was very fond of eating and cooking. So I think he would be good company. Um, I also would love to see some friends that have perished perish, um, in recent years that were all about food and cooking and dinner parties and all that. Roxanne, I wanna thank you for joining us today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to talk to me. Um, your, your recipes in your cookbook, are phenomenal and I really enjoyed it very much and I plan on using it very much in the future. Thank you. This was such such a fun experience. Thank you. Okay. I 
want to thank you for joining us today with my conversation with Roxana Jalapat, author of Mother Grains, Recipes for a Grain Revolution. I can't emphasize how much I think this is an important cookbook, and I think that if you go out right now and buy it, you'll love it, and you'll use it, and you'll come to uh, enjoy it and love it as much as I do. Please tune in next week. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with author of the Necronom Nom Nom, Mike Slater, who also runs Red Duke Games. Um, he is a game creator and author of the Necronom Nom Nom, which is a cookbook that is based off of the writings and the mythos of the HP Lovecraft. It's a fun cookbook that has actually really credible, wonderful recipes in it and drinks. And I think you'd love it. Uh, please turn in for the conversation. I really enjoyed talking with Mike. Thank you and see you next week and uh, keep cooking.